Exclusive Books Homebrew is a celebration of the diversity that is local writing, covering fresh perspectives on history, sharing never-told-before personal stories, challenging established views, and excavating the trough of political policy. Exclusive Books Homebrew. Not the same old story. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. Today's guest has written an eye-opening, jaw-dropping, mind-blowing, and cisgender-bending memoir. Robert Hamblin has taken a hand grenade and hoid it into a world you thought you knew, exploding stereotypes as he writes about his gender transition. Robert, by Robert, is a beautifully crafted, powerful autobiography that reads like a novel. Robert the Memoir, not Robert the Artist, is a book about lies and secrets and fear and hate and pain and violence and hurting and difficult, complicated, messy relationships. It's also a story of courage and love and romance and truth and hope and healing. Welcome to the Homebrew Podcast, Robert. Can you please read us an excerpt? <laughs> I first have to express my appreciation for the word. I've never heard this before. I think you you did something there by saying cisgender bending. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we just let people know what cisgender means? And I mean, we can call it long, we, we can make long paragraphs of what it means, but basically <laughs> it means not transgender. So somebody that isn't transgender. So that's lovely. Thank you. Yes, I'd love to read for you. The Coronation Hospital was opened in October 1944 in the suburb of Coronationville, established for people classified as colored and Indian, in inverted commas. Fifty years later, I make my way through its wide passages, across its orange vinyl polymer waxed floors. Ammonia and other antiseptics assault my nostrils. That and something else which I can't quite put my finger on. Something smells natural, perhaps the way sand and tree bark would smell, if you mix them up with a smell of anguish. Perhaps the smell is just in my own nostrils, I don't know. It's rising up from inside of me. This morning the passages are empty of families and food smells, because visiting hours are yet to start. I'm the only white person here who isn't wearing a uniform or a white coat. Nobody stops me for breaking the rules. I move through the passages with ease, the place assuming my authority by the color of my skin. I remain unsure how to process this though. A few steps before I reach his room, I hear voices singing a song I remember from church long ago. The sound comforts me. I decide to sit down on the blue pleather and steel government issue armchairs outside the room. The lyrics of the song that follows aren't familiar, but the tune is. One of the women is singing clear enough for me to catch most of the words. The words sound like this. When this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall, then there's quiet, then humming, a few laughs followed by returning to sing. And again the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
A large hospital ward has 20 curtained beds, beds which are almost empty, mostly empty. His bed at the lower end is surrounded by brown-skinned women in their white uniforms and neat blue shoes. They are singing while they work with his body. They move in unison while washing him. I don't want to see him being washed. I don't want to lose the line that separates his body from mine again. My feet keep walking, though, as if my body has vertigo, almost falling towards him. Or is it the sounds of their voices comforting me, calling me closer? The words again. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. One of them sees me as she turns to swap a wet towel for a dry one, and she smiles. Oh, hi, Miss Hamblin. We are almost done with your father. Do you want to come sit here? Or you can wait outside if you like. The others turn to me and circle, and the circle around him opens. His eyes are glassy, as they have been for the last month, and his mouth is open. But he looks different, stranger. His mouth looks even bigger. He's trying to smile. I want to turn my head away, avoid the difficulty. But I look. His face is shaven, moustache is trimmed, and they have dressed him in a clean hospital gown. The sheets and blankets are tucked in under his arms, around his hips. The bedding holds him up. One of the women who is cutting his nails pulls the ring from his thumb where he's been wearing it because his other fingers have become too thin. She hands it to me. They start singing again and the one closest to him massages his head and thinning wet hair. They keep singing, brown hands, white cream rubbing through swirls of black hair onto pale yellowing skin. In the words, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. The woman massaging him wraps a towel around his head, the way women do, and leaves it on while she packs the shampoo and other things into a basin on the trolley next to her. There, look, he came alive, she shouts, and they stop singing. They cluck and cheer and squeeze his arms and feet and then walk off, leaving him propped up with a blanket, spanking clean. He falls asleep, his sleeping face under his towel hat is peaceful and my month-long fatigue lifts. I take the pencil and diary from my backpack, the Elizabeth diary, the one for every move I make. The pages are now devoid of my daily reports to her. I don't even try to defend myself anymore. The paper is now used for real writing. I'm going to make a film. And this is how the words go. My father was a real morphy. He styled my mother's hair made her dresses, was generally her best friend. One day they sat on a low couch. His stovepipe slid up his legs. My mother shrieked at the sight of a man with shaved legs. He quickly told her that he had taken up cycling. Years later, he told me that he'd been in a drag show the night before, but he couldn't tell her that. He then said, but now I know that being a gay man doesn't mean one has to be a woman. He looked at his clothes on my body and said, and to be a gay woman doesn't mean one has to be a man. I should have told him then, I'm not a lesbian. But I didn't know yet that I'm, that I'm. I want to take a picture of him to go with these words. Not sure how they'll fit together yet. Maybe I should document these moments. This might be the last chance to take a picture of him. But my camera's in the car. On my return, he is awake and the towel is no longer on his head. He holds a Coke can in two hands and sips slowly from the straw. When he sees me, he attempts to smile again, and I muster up the courage to smile too. 
ask him if he'll put the towel back on his head and let me photograph him. He doesn't protest and I wrap it around his head, trying not to touch his skin. While the motor drive sings against my face, he turns his head slowly from one side to the other. He's enjoying the shoot. Seems peaceful. There's none of his usual anger. When he was healthy, he would have seen this as an attempt to feminize him and he would have resisted. He lifts his hand to the side of his head and taps the towel on the in a camp gesture of glee, looks back at me slowly. We haven't smiled or laughed or made these camp jokes for months. Throughout, he's been angry and petulant. His mouth only held blood and nose for me. He falls asleep. Something is burning in my chest. I feel afraid. I should cry. I know. I should leave. I know. I should be sad. I know. I should pity him. I know. But I don't. Something I do know is my pencil and my journal. I reread my last scribble. But I didn't know yet that I'm, that I'm. The words I want to write there make no sense, so I twirl the pencil around in a full stop that becomes a widening silver dot after the last word. My hand eventually goes ahead. But I didn't know yet that I am a man. My heart quickens when I read the three-letter word. I slam the book closed quickly. I look up. He's sleeping. I take courage and open the book and continue. Wow. Yo. <laughs> have you thought of doing a, an audio book? <laughs> <laughs> I have been approached by a local company that is burgeoning uh, um, to, to do that. And I was like, who would play me? <laughs> and the I, owner said, you play yourself, of course. <laughs> Robert, in crafting this memoir, you excavated some painful memories, and we've heard some of your memories now. But was writing this one giant therapy session? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm supposed to say yes. I'm, so, I'm associated with an organization called the Life Writing Collective. And, you know, they taught me there how to meditate or sort of into the depths of, of, of these experiences. Otherwise, the memories would be kind of uh, flat, you know. And that's why I could come up with these stripped, real visual images. But it was, I don't know, it was really, really painful thing to write because most, the bulk of it, I wrote in the first lockdown. And so there was already all that uncertainty going on and uncertainty of everything. And it was, it was painful. It was a really painful experience on top of that. But I think the healing came when the, the first layout came back from the publisher. And, you know, you see it in a different font that you've been looking at for two years. And it's real. It became an artwork to me then. And, and, and I think then I loved it. And I felt, okay, something has been done. It's complete. It's done. And, and there was something there that happened for me. The book gets into the nitty-gritty of a series of complex relationships that you have. The one is with your father. Then, of course, there's the relationship with Alexis, the love of your life. And then, most importantly, your relationship with yourself. What did you learn about yourself while writing this memoir? <laughs> yes, these interviews are so confrontational. My <laughs> I'm so glad that there wasn't a very big gap between between finishing the book and publishing it because you know I'm still quite fresh inside of the memories of writing it. So I'm 
I think what I remembered about myself, and you know, I've transitioned, it's been almost 15 years, and so revisiting myself in my, in my youth where I had to play a female role in society, it was an interesting thing because I think in the time that we are, there's a lot of visiting of trauma and trauma yeah. healing. You know, that was visiting the trauma, but inside of it, I kind of realized also that I was a very empowered person as a woman. And, you know, it just kept coming up. It kept coming up in the writing that despite the pain and the discomfort of sitting inside of a body that I wasn't perfectly comfortable in, you know, my experiences were very of a successful person. And I was empowered as a woman. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have this sort of a consciousness of trauma then and the, you know the sexism that i experienced in in the office i played it um and so it was nice to rediscover myself and see that i you know i've always been a determined person no matter what shape or what challenge has come 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 to the fore for me and i think that was healing i suppose too what was it like writing from your younger self's perspective and how did you stay true to your memory <laughs> you know writers are blixems eh <laughs> <laughs> They they flounce the story together for you, where you think like, "Wow, this person really knows themselves." <laughs> but but meantime, you know, you're stealing a lot from your environment, and I am very surrounded by children, and so that was a blessing in in doing it that way, um, especially the stuff where I'm a small child. Um, you know, um, from the time that I started writing until now, my child was from the age of four until till seven. Well, six. Um, and so I, you know, and all the little friends at different ages around her. And so they, uh, the way that they speak was in my consciousness. And so it was easier for me to write that way. And I have my godchild, my godchildren are teenagers now. And so I could go into that space with them. And yeah, I always say a writer is not really that person sitting on a hill somewhere. You are, you are deeply interconnected with everyone around you and you feed off your environment and to reflect it back out. And hopefully it's a rewarding reflection that you do outwardly. There's a lot of sex in your memoir. What was it like writing these sex scenes? <laughs> uh, um, well... Some of the, the some of the sex scenes were they they were not there solely for fun, right? Right. It's not it's not uh, Fifty Shades of Grey or something. It's it's there to illustrate discomfort in the body and how, especially within sex, how sexuality, how trans people have a serious discomfort because of the constructs of gender and your partner is not always as fluid as you are. And but you know. Again, I had to remember that despite my discomforts and the suspicions I had of the journey that was still lying ahead of me, I was having a lot of fun in my youth. And <laughs> so I think writing that sex was a, was a lot of fun. And I'm sorry, but a lot of it got cut by my, by my editor because I think I was having too much fun with it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard from Alexis since the book was published? Oh my goodness! Um, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but I do have my little birdies out in my in my network, and um, apparently she is conscious of the book that is is there now, and I'm hoping that she's reading it and finding in it some healing, like I did, because 
um, you know, I reflected her from that loving perspective of my childhood self and also wanted, it was very important for me to show the injustice that, that happened to her, the terrible thing that happened to her and, and how I felt about it and how it is politically important in the time that we, that we are. And speaking about politically important, you could have remained quiet about your transition, but instead you have been open. Why did you decide to become an activist? Oh, I don't know so much if I just decided that, but you know, I've always been a public person. So I had, before my transition, I had what I called, you know, the Adele Hamblin show. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I was this uh, sexy lesbian with long black coats and biker boots and long hair, you know, shaking them all over the place, you know, and I was photographing uh, celebrities of South Africa. There was so much media about me always where people would refer to me as South Africa's Annie Libowitz and you know, Annie Libowitz, the, the famous celebrity photographer in, in America. And so to kill that <laughs> would have been really hard. And so I had to find a way to make it all make sense and that the public and my life could continue without having a, a break. And then it sort of seemed kind of natural as for somebody that is in the media already to use that platform to just tell my story. But of course, you know, when you're so in the light, those NGO people will find you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, NGO approached me to to start working with them and uh, my now uh, partner, Sally Jean, and I and a few other people started the organization Gender Dynamics, which is the first formal registered organization that was concerned with uh, transgender rights in Africa. What do you hope your book achieves? Ha! I suppose I should be an activist now and say something like, you know, we're at the transgender tipping point and I'm glad I can be part of it and I'm hoping that we can have this tipping point in South Africa. Okay, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I'll say is I hope that the tipping point can be an understanding of this is a privileged transgender person's life. You know, there was a lot of joy in the transition for me, despite my discomforts and pain and hurt. And that uh, perhaps we can look at privilege as the future. And I'm hoping that everybody in South Africa will eventually like escape poverty and especially trans people, uh, trans people who are not privileged are unable to have this transition that I have had. Yeah, I'm just hoping that, you know, this will inform people with power who are, of course, you know, privileged people and that it will bring about change because there is joy in the book too. And, you know, there I am now, just another little guy buying his groceries every second day. I'm not a nuisance to society. Well, mostly I'm not a nuisance to society, but yeah. <laughs> We've got a question from an exclusive books reader. This is Jean. I've got a question for Robert. What is it like to put your life out there and share such personal details about yourself? I like that question a lot because in another interview, I, I was asked, why am I underplaying the, the work that I've done in the process of exposing my life? And what I said was, I wasn't trained to be an activist. And it ended up being a really a painful experience that I had to withdraw from. My wife was an activist since she was in her early 20s. And so she had those experiences. And by the time, you know, now she's in her 50s, as I am, and you take it in your stride. But I don't take activism in my stride. What I do take in my stride is interviews, media, how to be in the light. And that's because I grew up in the theater and television world, photographing uh, television actors, 
actors and theater actors and interviewing them when I was still working in the media. And so I think I was kind of trained from a very young age to have an understanding of, of what a life looks like that is exposed in the light and having friends that are actors and that. And so it's really not that difficult for me to do that part. It's when I become responsible for other people's lives that it's really difficult for me. But to tell my own story, that's not so difficult. Robert, a queer and crooked memoir for the not-so-straight or narrow is a deeply moving biography about a trans man's life story. More than that, it's a journey to freedom. Thank you very much, Robert, and thank you for listening to The Homebrew Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homebrew. Do you have a question you'd like to ask our homebrew authors? Send us your question and you could win a 200 Rand exclusive books voucher if yours gets chosen. WhatsApp a voice note to 079-664-0465. That's 079-664-0465. Or email social media at exclusivebooks.co.za. To find out who our upcoming authors are, just follow Exclusive Books on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This homebrew podcast was produced by Jonathan Anser, Dan Dews, and Lerato Sebanda for Exclusive Books. Books available in-store and online at exclusivebooks.co.za. Homebrew, not the same old story.